I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and uh, again, I also want to welcome you to our special Palm Sunday. Sunday, as we worship together, they just sang the song that tells the story of Christ coming to Jerusalem to enter into that city. I want to set it up uh, with a little bit different approach. This morning, we have the important role of understanding how Palm Sunday is to impact our lives. It's not so we can watch a donkey walk around and uh, have palm branches and wave them, and uh, those are all nice and sweet things, and they add a lot of flavor to this season of year. But there are four things that I want us to take home with us today as a result of understanding Palm Sunday. And I want to set it up by having you put on your thinking caps for just a moment. And I want to give you a quote that's a little bit longer than 144 characters, and so we're going to have to hang in there with us. But I want us to, I want to quote from uh, a fellow I was reading this last week, A.N. Wilson. He was one of the great intellectual atheists, humanist, materialistic atheist, who was proposing that as an alternative view and wrote books contrary to Jesus, attacking Jesus, that Jesus was a failed messianic prophet. Here is what he wrote about Palm Sunday one day when he went to a a cathedral and worshipped the Lord on that Sunday. He says, when I took part in the procession last Sunday, that would be Palm Sunday, he's writing this in the Daily Mail, the London newspaper on the Saturday before Easter. So referencing the previous Sunday, when I took part in the procession last Sunday and heard the gospel being chanted, I assented to it with complete simplicity. My own return to faith has surprised no one more than myself. Why did I return to it? Partially because perhaps it is no more than the confidence that I have gained with age. Rather than being cowed by them, I relish the notion that by asserting a belief in the risen Christ, I am defying all the liberal clever clogs on the block. But there is more to it than that. My belief has come about in the large measure because of the lives and examples of people I have known. Not the famous, not the saints, but friends and relations who have lived and faced death in the light of the resurrection story or in the quiet acceptance that they have a future after they die. Materialist atheism says we are just a collection of chemicals. It has no answer whatsoever to the question of how we should be capable of love or heroism or poetry if we are simply animated pieces of meat. The resurrection which proclaims that matter and spirit are mysteriously conjoined is the ultimate key to who we are. But an even stronger argument is the way that Christian faith transforms individual lives, the lives of men and women with whom you mingle on a daily basis, the man, woman, or child next to you in church tomorrow morning. And again, he wrote it in the Daily Mail referring to Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. I want this Palm Sunday to be impactful in our lives in ways that I believe Jesus intended it as he used all the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to tell of the entrance of Christ into the city of Jerusalem where he eventually would be crucified and that following Friday. And to understand that, I want to invite you into the text And we're going to look at the text and trust in the plans of God. And let me read the text for you and show you on the map here what Jesus is referring to. You have an outline, and I encourage you to use the outline available. I think you will get a lot more out of the service if you're able to do that. It's in the bulletin. But let me read this great passage of the 
Palm Sunday Sunday. Luke chapter 19, verse 28 says this. And after he had said these things, and again, previous message that was going on, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of All, that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. You see on the map the various locations. Bethany is about a mile and a half from Jerusalem. So they're moving from Bethany to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives and then into Jerusalem where he would enter into that gate and be ceremoniously honored with their clothes and with their palm branches. And he says to them about this colt, If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to, Jerusalem, to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. And as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God, joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave it. Leave in, one, leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's a really ominous conclusion to this very upbeat and passionate message. There are four things that I want us to take home with us today and have impact. And the first is this that comes out of the story. We need to trust in the plans of Jesus. Jesus had plans. He had plans that on a very small level, he says, go get the cult. It's tied up. It's never been ridden before. That's sort of a way, and I put a lot of the, some of this on the digging deeper on the backside, but never been ridden before shows it's pure and it's dedicated, it's sanctified, and it's one, if a donkey or a jackass can be sanctified, that colt was, if that's even possible. And so he takes that colt, that mule. In fact, King David had Solomon, his son, mount a mule as a way to process into show that he is indeed king as well. So it's not an unusual phenomenon for a king to be on a cult, to come in and parade to show that. But here is the practical side. For you and me to have impact, the first thing we need to take home with us is that we need to trust the plans of Jesus. Let me break that down a little bit. As they march over this mile and a half journey, one of the reasons we need to have trust in the plans of Jesus is because they may not make sense from our perspective. Now, if you put yourself in the minds of these disciples who go get the cult, do they understand what they're doing in getting the cult? Probably not. They go on the journey, it's tied up, 
Everything is according to the way Jesus said. Jesus also had a plan that he would come into Jerusalem. The people would parade him. They would wave palm branches. They would, they would uh, give him great praise. Did they understand what Jesus was doing? No, they did not. And then Jesus proceeded and to wash the disciples' feet on that upper room. And as they washed the disciples' feet, did they understand what he was doing in that upper room, that last communion service? They did not. But Christ had plans. Often the plans that God has for us don't make sense. That's normal. Notice in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the, high, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If I don't understand God, it doesn't mean that God's got a problem and he better get it right because I want to understand what he's doing. If I don't understand what God's doing in my life, I'm probably walking by faith in a way that honors him. Secondly, in John 13, as I referenced, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And here's one thing he said that I underlined. Then he poured out water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with a towel with which he had was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, and here's the key line, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. That is so profound and is so applicable and such a timeless principle that there is so much that Jesus does that right now I don't realize what He's doing. But later, I will understand. Now let me illustrate. How many of you walked into the lobby there and saw the sort of the, what we call the chandelier lights that are hanging from the uh, pallets on the top? Very basic thing, and our thanks to Ryan Rail who built that thing. And when you look at those lights, they look like a bunch of random lights. In fact, the first time I saw those lights, I said, oh, that's nice, a bunch of lights hanging in the lobby. That's, that's, that's good. I hope I don't hit my head on them. And that's how simplistic my mind is. I see something like that, and it looks like a bunch of random lights that has no sense of purpose or design behind it. But there's an amazing thing that happens, that as I stood there, Tim Nellis came alongside, and well, let me show you where you need to stand so that you can see what you currently do not see. And so as he positioned me into place, this is what happens. And unless you're standing in the right spot, you don't see Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? There's something that happens that when a friend comes along and says, you know, it looks like a bunch of random lights but let me show you where you need to stand to gain the perspective and see Jesus in that mess of lights. And there's something more profound that goes in terms of the details and the circumstances of our lives that often our lives look like a bunch of random events, circumstances that seem to be chaotic at times, where disease and finances and jobs and relationships and marriages and parents and children, it all looks like a bunch of confusing random events. But one thing that I am learning from the life of Christ in this particular account is that he still has a plan in place. And the problem is not his. The problem is mine. I just haven't been positioned yet to see what Jesus is going to do. As he said to his disciples, you do not understand what I'm doing now, but later you will understand. God does that. 
That's normal. To be confused about the random events that seem chaotic is normal. It's part of the Christian life. And it's not to be a frustration that I only have enough faith. It's to understand that i got a big God that does things that doesn't make sense to me and I need to walk by faith trusting Him in that. And secondly, I need to understand because they're controlled by God. God is masterminding all this. One of the things that Matthew chapter 21, 4 and 5, which is the parallel passage to the Luke 19 passage, Matthew says writing this cult was a fulfillment of what God said would happen. That's why you go back to Zechariah 9.9 that was written 520 B.C., 500 years before Jesus rode, rode that cult, he prophesied, Rejoice greatly, O Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 500 years before Christ told his disciples, You'll find a colt tied up, never been ridden. Bring it to me. I'm going to write it. Zechariah said, that's going to happen. And fulfillment occurred. The point is this. Trust in the plans of Jesus because, number one, they won't always make sense. Number two, they are controlled by God. Let me give you another illustration. I'm going to invite Larry Dunn, one of our missionaries. We're so glad to have the Dunns with us all the way from Ireland. And so you had to get up early this morning to get here on time, but we're thankful to have you here. Jet lag. Yes. <laughs> so just stay awake for this segment and otherwise you can sleep. But Larry, I, I appreciate what Larry shared. If you weren't there at the breakfast uh, about a week or so ago, Larry and Kathy did a great job sharing with us about your life and, and just this little snapshot of your life. You had a fishing accident. You were a fisherman of fish before you were a fisherman of men Correct. in missionary work. And uh, you lost your arm in that fishing accident off the coast of Ireland. And I think it's just fascinating how God has even used that, which for most of us as a young man, losing their arm would be a very tragic thing, but how God has blessed even through that unexpected circumstance. Mm-hmm. Share a little bit about how that works. Well, yeah, I'm, I didn't know at the time that um, the Lord was going to use this. I mean, it just didn't make sense at the time. Um, but as the time went on, the Lord showed me on many, many different occasions you know, what he can do with the loss of my arm. There was one particular time when I was in uh, County Mayo and we were sharing the gospel of Christ with people. We were going from house to house. And I knocked on a door and a lady came out. You could see that she wasn't very happy at all. And she said, I just said to her, I said, you know, geez, spoke about the gospel and spoke about God. And, and with that straight away, she said, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in a God who would take my little girl and give her cancer in the eye and cause her to have to lose her eye. She's at school now at five years of age and she cries every day coming home because the boys are making fun of her. She feels very different, she said. She just wants to be a little girl. She just wants to be a normal girl, but she feels so different. And at that time I had the prosthetic arm on me And so I I proceeded to tell her, well, you know what? I had a little accident myself one time. And I I took the hook out of my pocket and showed her the arm. And the the mother just looked at me. And she called her little girl in. And she says, Mary, Mary, come in here. There's a man here. And he's a a little bit different as well. And, of course, little Mary came in. She was very sad. And she walked in. and, And she looked at it. And she just lit up when she saw that there was somebody else that was different. 
I showed her the hook. She started twisting it around. I even took it off. And she had it in her hand. And she looked at it. And a big smile came on her face. And she looked at her brother. And she started running after him around the house with the hook. I thought it was very funny. Be careful with that thing. You know. And, and she came back finally and put it back on again. But I'll never forget what the mother said to me. The mother said to me, she said, you don't know what you have done. You don't know what you have done. I don't know what I did, but I, all I did was allow the Lord to use my troubles, my arm, for his glory and for his purpose. And after all that he's done over the years through this, I can just say, thank you, Lord, for taking this arm from me, because you've used it so many, many times. And I give him the praise for that. All right. Thank you, Larry. Okay. We're, we're blessed by you and Kathy and your ministry with us. Thank you for that. Another example of how God has a story that is unfolding, and there are moments in time when it simply is very confusing. But allow someone to position you in place to see what Christ is trying to do through that. It's why we need one another. It's why you and I need to be the people that helps direct others in the chaos of their circumstances to be positioned in a way that they can see what Christ is going to ultimately do. We don't have all the answers, but we can help point them in the right direction. First point, Palm Sunday helps us trust in the plans of Jesus even when they don't make sense they're under his control. Second point. Here is a key one. We need to offer authentic praise to Christ. When the people began to approach Jesus as he came in, they saw him on the cult. They'd seen him doing the great work. And it says in verse 37 these words. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, so he's very close to the gate of Jerusalem, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Here is the problem with that. As good as it sounds and as uplifting as it would be to realize that revival has come to Jerusalem, the fact of the matter is these people were praising Jesus for the wrong reason. It was not what I would consider to be authentic worship of Jesus. Number one, the Jewish people did not want Roman government oppression. They wanted to be set free from Roman oppression. They saw Jesus as the one who was coming in to establish the kingdom of David once again. That Jesus would be the king and he would vanquish the powers of Rome. Finally, they'd have freedom like we have in America in a sense that they are no longer under Roman oppression. They can practice their religion. They can practice their businesses without the control of Roman government telling them how to do it. And so they wanted Jesus to be the one that they would worship if he would help make life better for them. I want to have a better life. Secondly, you notice what it says there, Luke records. They were praising God joyfully with a loud voice for, for all the miracles he had performed. Well, Jesus, I'll believe in you if you do a miracle for me. I'll believe in you if you heal me. I'll worship you if you provide for me. I'll honor you if you get me that job. We love to praise Jesus when Jesus does what we want him to do. Sort of the big Santa Claus in the sky. He just comes and helps us with our life so we live a better life today. Those are not reasons to praise Jesus. Here are the questions that I bring to my mind. 
when I come to worship like on a Palm Sunday today, is it to fulfill my own desires, to meet my own needs, to make my life more comfortable? I'll praise Jesus. Is it based upon my temporary felt needs or my eternal spiritual needs? Or is it here just simply to honor Christ in His life? Sometimes our worship, or I can say I'll just take ownership on myself, sometimes my worship is about me getting what I want in the service, not God getting what He deserves in the service. Sometimes if the song is not what I want it to be, then I don't think it's worth singing. Sometimes if the preacher is not as relevant as I want him to be or as interesting as I think he should be, well, then I don't know that it's worth my time to listen. Because it's all about me. I come and I am my own little God and my own little pew seat. And it's all about satisfying my needs. And that's what they were doing. They were coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, satisfy my needs and we'll praise you. We'll throw you a party. We'll give you the red carpet treatment with our cloak coats and our palm branches. As long as you do what we want you to do, Jesus, we'll thank you. That is a terrible way to praise Jesus. What Christ is inter- interested in for you and for me and, and for Palm Sunday is to, number one, trust in His plans. Number two, have authentic worship and praise. Praise that honors Christ for who He is, even when He doesn't make any sense. The third thing I noticed about this is this. I need to identify with the pain of Christ. If Palm Sunday is going to impact my life, I need to enter into the mind of Christ. Here's a fascinating thing that happens as Christ comes into the city. After all the hoopla, all the praise, all the celebration, a lot of great things that are going on, it was like a robust party. The disciples had to be very gratified that finally they're praising Jesus. We think this is a good thing. And then Jesus gives this sort of this downer thing. He sort of brings the, he takes the wind out of the sail of all the praise that's going on. As Jesus says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Why did he weep over it? Because Jesus goes on to say that there will be the days that will come when you, when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And when they will level you to the ground and your children within you, they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. What Jesus is saying is that you're all going to be destroyed. Your city is going to be destroyed. You're going to die. Your children are going to die. You know, that has a way of sort of turning a party into a very negative experience. Here they are praising Jesus, thinking what a great Savior He is going to be as He redeems us from Roman oppression. And Jesus says, well, you got it all wrong because I weep over you because I know what's going to happen. And I'll tell you what happened is this. There's a historian by the name of Josephus, and if you're uh, a student of the Word, you have probably have heard of his name. The first century uh, historian named Josephus wrote about the destruction that Jesus was referring to. When Jesus is coming into the uh, city of Jerusalem, he is saying, I weep over you, Jerusalem, I weep over you. That's his pain. He is pained over the fact that there are people in Jerusalem his children, that he wants to, he wants to be like a, a mother bird that covers them with his wings, he says. But I know that you will be destroyed. And then after Jesus died on the cross, maybe it's around 30 A.D., it was 70 A.D., when Titus of Roman rule came 
and utterly destroyed the city of Jerusalem. As Jesus says, they will be barrack, you will be barricaded, they will surround you and hem you in on every side. That's exactly what happened. They hemmed them in on every side. Here's what Josephus wrote as the historian, the observer, the fact finder of this particular day that caused our Savior to weep. And I want to bring us too far down, but I want us to understand that this is for real. Josephus writes, So all the hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews, together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devoured the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were full of women and children that were dying by famine. And the lanes of the city were full of dead bodies and of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine, and fell down dead whatsoever their misery seized them. As for burying them, those that were sick themselves were not able to do it, and those that were hardy and well were deterred from doing it by the great multitude of those dead bodies. And by the uncertainty there was how soon they should die themselves, for many died as they were burying others and went to their own coffins before the fatal hour was come. Titus and his Roman army surround Jerusalem, cut off all supplies of food, and the people literally die from starvation. That's what caused Jesus to weep. Not only that, the Roman soldiers stood outside the city of Jerusalem, and they had all kinds of food. And the Roman soldiers would take the food and be eating it as the Jewish people would look over the walls of Jerusalem and they'd see all this food, all this lush food that the Roman soldiers were consuming and they couldn't have any of it just to rub it in. And to make it worse, there were some Jewish disciples and and, uh, brothers and sisters who were trying to escape from Jerusalem. And one of the things that they would do is this. They would take the gold that they had. They didn't have banks in those days. So they'd take the gold and the precious metals and they would swallow it. And then they would escape. The Roman soldiers would capture them. And then they would dissect them to remove the gold. I mean, this is horrible stuff. And then Titus took and he began to bombard the city with his boulders, catapulting these big things in there. And the walls crumbled down. The temple was destroyed. And it was totally annihilated. And Jesus knew this. As he walked into that beautiful city of Jerusalem, he says, you don't understand. Unless you come and follow me in 70 A.D., in 30, 40 more years, this is going to happen to you. And Christ had this understanding of the reality of rejecting Jesus and not following Jesus, and not acknowledging Him as God, as this one who has come as a true spiritual Savior of their souls, He knew, if you don't follow Me, I know this is going to happen. Because I can see into that future. And I know what Titus is going to do. And that's why Jesus mourned on the day of His greatest celebration, because He understood the reality of the spiritual deficit of those who don't believe. And, you know, for us, there's a bit of that as well. As much as I'm feeling very negative and, and, and down about this, 
and even reciting some of those facts and you give you even more facts that are even more miserable for you, that you don't want to hear of the terrible things that they did. But there's a reality to that that we sometimes forget. And we think it's all about the coats on the ground, the palm branches, the beautiful colt, the donkey, the kids celebrating and singing. And those are okay if they're to praise God for who He is, not for what I want. But when I don't understand the reality of why Jesus came into this world, why Jesus came into Jerusalem, why Jesus comes to us today, when I don't understand that, I fail to understand the reality of what happens when my life is not committed to Him and His salvation and His redemptive course and His means by which I can be redeemed from my sins and remove the wrath of God and allow to be freely in the, in the palm of God's hand to be adopted into His family, to remove all destination of hell, to give me a destination of a heaven, that I, that I don't see the reality of all that this really this Sunday is telling us about the dramatic outcome of whatever decision I make for Jesus. That to follow Jesus and be committed to Him is to give me redemption from sin, wrath, and hell. But to reject, to turn away, to be complacent, is to place me in another destination. And as Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem, you and I need to weep over those who do not follow Him. That's why I want to stop for just a moment. I want to invite you to enter into the pain of Christ. And what is that pain? There will be those who know the truth but reject it. And when they reject it like the Jewish people of Jerusalem there will be another 70 A.D. A virtual 70 A.D. where there will be a price to be paid. And I don't want that to happen to anyone, nor should you. And so I want to invite you to spend just a quiet moment and then even to jot down a name or two when you think, God, is it possible, as you could save Wilson, a materialistic atheist, is it possible you could save my friend as well? Is it possible that Christ could intervene in his or her life? My child, my parent, my co-worker, my neighbor. God, is it possible that you would do that even this week? So I want to invite you for just a quiet moment. It's going to be dead quiet in here. Would you pray for those you know that need to believe in Jesus and that his redemptive work of saving, healing, restoring with a holy God in heaven would be completed in their lives as well. And then write down those names and say, God, give me an opportunity to invite them next Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Would you pray right now? Just where you're at. I'm going to pray too. Father God, I want to thank you that Christ came into this world and as much as he might have reveled in the celebration of the palm branches and the people's quoting of Psalm 118 and saying how blessed to come in the name of the Lord, from the outside that looked really good, 
But on the inside, Christ was grieving. He was grieving over the loss that he would see someday of these same people who rejected him days later as he was crucified on the cross. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Roman rulers, all of them, they crucified Jesus. And the destruction came. So, Father, as you wept over that reality, God, I pray that our hearts would be equally burdened and concerned, prayerful, sensitive, totally yielded and submissive to your Spirit, to be engaged with those who also need to believe in Jesus. Because there is a reality for all of us As sure as there was a 70 A.D. for Jerusalem, there will be another like that someday. And I know, Father, it wasn't popular in Jerusalem when he wept over their future destination. And frankly, here we are a couple thousand years later. Lord, I understand there will be any number in this room and churches across this world who don't find that a very uplifting message either. But there's a certain reality that you have caused us to enter into that we need to come to grips with that short of trusting in Jesus, there are dire consequences. And God, it's not to be a scaremonger, but to be a realist. That we would understand your pain, your tears over the lost. Help us to be likewise concerned for, prayerful with, and inviting those that likewise need Jesus. Father, thank you for the reminder. As I pray it in Christ's name, amen. What we've seen so far is this, that Palm Sunday is an opportunity for me to trust in the plans of God that don't always make sense. Secondly, that Palm Sunday is a is a day for us to enter into authentic worship, not worship that says, God, do for me what I want, but worship that says, God, let me do for you what you want. Thirdly, Palm Sunday is a day where I enter into the pain of Christ, where he wept over the very people who were celebrating him with palm branches. He wept because he saw the destiny of those who did not trust in him and that we should weep over those who likewise are lost. But finally, the last point is this, that we need to accept the true peace that Christ can bring. As much of a downer as to the pain of Christ, here is where Christ wants to come and make a difference in our lives. Jesus had this one little phrase that is easy to sort of gloss over. He has said to them, If you had known this day, this day of all that is about to transpire, even you, the things which make for peace, if only you could see what I see, if only you could know what I know, if only you could enter into my life and you could find the things that make for peace, this is what I came into this world to do, to transform my heart so I can have the peace of God in my life. And there are three ways that Christ brings peace into our lives. Here's number one. Peace with people. When you and I become a follower of Jesus, we should have better peace with people, not worse peace. We should have less conflict, 
not more conflict. We should have better marriages, not worse marriages. We should be better bosses, not worse bosses. We should be people that says, I want to be more like them. Remember R.N. Wilson, the faith atheist? What saved the atheist? Was it an intellectual argument that somehow convinced him? No, it was not the famous, it was not the saints. He says, it was my ordinary friends when I saw how they lived their lives and the transformation, the resurrection that said to me, I want that. Peace with God. Proverbs 16, 7 says this, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. There's something happens when I'm right with Christ that suddenly, laterally or horizontally, even my enemies say, well, you know what? I can't find fault in that guy. We also read in Romans 12, with grace and forgiveness, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, as far as it depends on you, my side of the coin, be at peace with all men. So there's peace that happens with people when I come to Christ. There's peace that comes into my own heart when I'm troubled, when I'm downcast, when I'm disturbed by the circumstances and the lights look like they're random and I can't really see Jesus yet. Christ wants to give peace in my heart. Notice this. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I trust in the plans of Jesus even when they don't make sense because then I have perfect peace in my mind. I don't get this, Lord, but I'm trusting you for it because you're going to give me an image of Christ in this chaos. Philippians says, by Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and with supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When I pray, I say, Lord, take away the fear, take away the anxiety, and give me your peace that passes all understanding. I shouldn't have peace. It's beyond understanding that I have peace given what I'm living through, but I have peace. God says, that's what I want to give to you. And then finally, not only should there be peace with the people around me, peace within my own heart, but peace with God. This is what Romans 5 says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also... We have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Peace with God. Where God, I know where I stand with you. And here is my invitation as we go to communion. My invitation is this. Do you have peace with God? If you have peace with God, you would be able to say that if I died right now, I'd know I'd go to heaven. If you don't know that if you died right now that you would go to heaven, you do not have peace with God. Because peace with God means that I am settled. My eternal destiny is taken care of. I know what the future is, and I know that God has it all in His hands. He's controlling it all. And so I'm going to invite anybody who does not have peace with God right now to make a decision to believe in Jesus, to say, Jesus, I look at the lights and they look like random events. I come to worship you and it's all about what I want. I don't really feel any pain over the fact that there are lost people. But help me to gain the peace that you say you will promise to those who trust in you so that I can begin this new journey with you and see you in all that's going on in this world and be able to trust in your saving work in my life. So I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer. Would you bow with me in just a moment?
Father God, I come to you and I thank you that Jesus gave us the opportunity to understand peace, peace in our hearts. Even when the plans look very uncertain, God, give us peace. And for those that do not have peace with holy God in heaven, I invite you to pray with me this word. God in heaven, I know that I have failed. I have sinned. But God, I want to have your peace in my heart. I want to be right with you. So I trust in Jesus today. He came to this world to save me. So I believe in Him now. Thank you, Father. Forgive me, Father. And help me to know the work that you want to do as we move forward. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take communion now. and It's really reflective of a communion with a holy God because I have peace through Christ that gives me that separation from sin. And we're going to take the bread first. It symbolizes the body of Jesus. And it's that body that was crucified that allows us now to have forgiveness and full peace with Him. Let me pray for the bread. Father, thank You for this bread. Father, as we take these into our hands and we sit and reflect upon the body of Jesus, we thank You for His great sacrifice of becoming God in human flesh. Jesus, fully God, fully man, so that we could have a relationship with You. So thank You, Father, for this gift symbolized through this bread. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.